So this morning, intentions finished, our studies in Romans 10. Uh, this evening, and then in a couple of weeks' time, we'll turn in the morning service to Romans 11. Again, the plan is to transfer the Romans series from the, the evening service to the morning. And then we'll do something else in the evening services coming into the new year. Again, tonight, particularly, we're looking at the last section here, verse 16 to the end. Uh, really almost summarized by those opening words, verse 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. And that is our text for tonight. They have not all obeyed the gospel. Now let's bow together, please, in prayers. Look at this solemn subject of gospel rejection. May God help us as we come around the word. Let's pray. Almighty God and Father, we are those who, by and large, have heard the gospel and received the gospel. And yet we're coming to a subject, of Lord, where it recognizes again that the usual response to the gospel is of rejection. Because the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit. And so as we consider this subject, may it move our souls to urgent and earnest prayer. For only those who are born again of the Spirit of God, can hear the gospel and believe the gospel. So, will God, we pray, save souls in this generation. Help us to understand the nature of this rejection, that our understanding be so, that it would help us to pray and to minister and to share the word with those with whom we come into contact. Give us grace tonight. Help us to understand and be blessed by the word. As we pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. I presume by now, I don't need to say it, but I'll say it anyway, these three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, are one unit that deal with the subject of Israel's rejection of Jesus as their Christ. Emmanuel did come to Israel in fulfillment of the prophecies. The Son of God came, his name was Jesus, he came to save his people from their sins. He is, as Matthew tells us, Emmanuel, God with us. And as he came unto his own, he is largely met with rejection. As John tells, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. And that has burdened the apostle's heart. It's caused sorrow in his soul. In chapter 9, verse number 2, he has great heaviness and continual sorrow in his heart. He's burdened for his kinsmen, those to whom the Christ came, verse number 5, and yet he rejected that very coming Christ. Oh yes, he moves on to consider the truth that within Israel there is a spiritual remnant. That was the case right back to the earliest days of the covenant with Abraham, that within that physical national or that physical nation there was a spiritual seed, those who believed the promises and in God's kindness uh, that true Israel includes Gentiles. Again, chapter 9, verse 25, I will call them my people, which are not my people. He, he takes the, the spirit of Hosea and applies it to the Gentiles. Again, it says in verse 24, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. And so the, the whole passage is, is about acceptance and rejection of the gospel. There are those who reject the word. And yet by God's grace, through election and through grace, there are those who hear the gospel and believe the gospel and are saved. But Paul's burden is for his countrymen here. 
It's obvious that his ministry is a burden for Gentiles. That's not the point of these chapters. His burden is for his countrymen. Verse 1 of chapter 10, My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. He's burdened for them, burdened by their blindness of the truth. They have a zeal of God, the true God. But that zeal for God is not according to knowledge. And so as he considers again the fact that they have they've forsaken their opportunity, he comes back again to deal with the issue of gospel rejection. Verse number 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. You would think that in the previous verses, given the availability of the gospel and the generosity of God, surely souls would be saved. Ever felt that way? We believe the truth. We believe the gospel is available. It's open to sinners. We, we present the gospel with, with, with God's abounding generosity, His, His mercies that, that, that never fail. Inexhaustible mercies that come to sinners through Christ Jesus. And yet we find ourselves in the same state. We say, they have not all obeyed the gospel. And the general response of people in our generation is rejection. They hear the word of God, they're given a gospel tract, they're spoken to privately or in the street, they're spoken to in the church of God. And those who do not know the gospel reject the gospel. It was true of us, true of you, perhaps even true of some even tonight. And so we understand this. In verse 16, the apostle quotes the words of Isaiah 53, verse 1. Isaiah said, Lord, who hath believed or report? And now we looked at that section several times back at the turn of the year in our communion services on Isaiah 53. And we saw the idea here is, is of a lament. The gospel comes forward. Again, the feet are beautiful who bring and preach the gospel of peace, the glad tidings of good things. They, the word of God comes, and yet they do not obey the gospel. They do not believe the report. And so I think we are seeing these closing verses, verse 16 through the end of the chapter. They are giving us, a, if you, if you like, a, some, some detail regarding the nature of this gospel rejection. So as I said and prayed, may it help us to understand what it is to reject the gospel. And that we then plead with souls, pray for souls, by God's grace, worship our generous God. The first thing to note here is a question. So please, if you've got your bullet in there, please note the question mark at the end of the point. Gospel rejection, excusable? Question mark. Because that's the sense here, verse 18. But I say... Have they not heard? Could it be said that the reason for the Jewish rejection is in some way they have not been exposed to the gospel? You know, it's clear back in verse 14. How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? There's a recognition that they must hear the gospel. And so, so therefore, has there been some way in which the Jews have been held back from understanding and hearing the gospel? Paul answers really in a very interesting way. He says, yes, verily. In other words, they, they have heard. Their sound went into all the earth and their words unto the ends of the world. 
Immediately, if you're a Bible student, you will know that those words are taken from the Psalm 19. You turn back there and you'll see them there in your own Bible, Psalm 19 and the verse number 4. Paul is taking the Greek translation of the Old Testament scripture of Psalm 19. In the opening verse, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. And then verse number 4, their line is gone through, out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. That immediately presents a problem. Why does Paul take Psalm 19 as a proof text for the availability of the gospel to the Jew? I grant it's a difficulty because Psalm 19 is not referring to the preaching of the Word of God. In fact, the Word of God is not really emphasized until you get down to verse number 7 of Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. And so the early verses of Psalm 19 are dealing with the book of nature. The general revelation of God through creation where he makes himself known to all the world. And the idea there is that the word of God is not hid from any. And that's the point Paul is making. That as general revelation goes to all creation, so it can also be said that the gospel of Christ went to all the Jews. It's the point of the general availability that if you like, there was no corner of a Jewish population that had not heard the gospel. The sound had gone out in a very general sense to all the Jews. You see, this is not suggesting, uh, people have, have taken wrong ideas from this, it's not suggesting that there were no more unreached people. It's not suggesting again that if you like, the gospel has gone out into, into every corner of the world. That's not the point. But Paul is stating here the responsibility of the Jews that they could not say that they had not heard about Jesus, the Messiah. They could not say that the gospel of Messiah was announced secretly in some place or they were prevented from knowing these things. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he did so publicly. You remember the conversation that the Lord has with the disciples on the road to Emmaus? One of them, named Clopas or Cleopas, answered, saying to him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem? Hast not known the things which are come to pass in these days? And the idea was that you don't know what's going on right now. We all, we're all talking about this same thing. There's this idea, this, this man Jesus, uh, and Pilate put a, an announcement upon the cross, King of the Jews, and then the disciples went to find him, and he's, he's gone. What's going on right now? It's being news and rumored around the place. So immediately when Christ is risen indeed, there's a question mark. Now, we know he appeared to 500 plus people. He did not come and appear in the public place. He does not appear in the temple. He doesn't appear in a mountain in that sense. He appears to those he chooses to appear to as, as eyewitnesses. But very soon, from Pentecost on, the news of Jesus as the Messiah is spread rapidly across the Jewish world at that time. They had heard the gospel. It's also worth noting, in the Apostle Paul's own description of ministry, turn, turn to Colossians chapter 1. There's a recognition, even in the Apostle Paul's time, that the gospel had gone widely to the known world. 
Yeah, this is another passage that causes some difficulties, but Colossians 1, 23 Paul is dealing with the, the, the necessity of the people of God. They're pressing on. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. And again, the point here is it's emphasizing how rapidly and widely the gospel has spread in the then known world. Now, now we know in Romans, Paul has yet, not yet gone to Spain. But yet the gospel has been rapidly and widely spread across the world. But while that's true of the Gentiles, Paul's point in Romans 10 is not only the Gentiles, but that there's not a Jew who was not aware of the news of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. His dying and the claim of resurrection, these things were known and used abroad. We must remind ourselves again that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The liberal church in the last century has again sought to, if you like, dull down the controversy of those who have not heard the gospel in far off nations. And they said, well, they're under God's mercy. They're not responsible in that sense. They haven't heard the gospel, therefore they're, they're not going to be condemned. They'll, they'll be saved in the final day. And the Bible doesn't teach that anywhere. In fact, it emphasizes here the necessity of hearing the word of God. But that those who hear the word of God are particularly held responsible. Souls go to hell not by rejecting the gospel, but due to their sin. And sin infects all humanity, whether they hear or don't hear the gospel. But for those who hear the gospel, they have a particular responsibility. And they cannot say, we did not know. And there's not one person in this building tonight who has not heard the gospel. Therefore, there's a tremendous weight of responsibility upon your soul. Have you put your trust in Christ Jesus? You will stand in the judgment day before God one day. And you cannot say, I did not know. I knew the truth, but I chose to reject the truth. What a solemn day that would be. Is gospel rejection excusable? Absolutely not. The second thing, though, to note is that gospel rejection is, in Paul's mind, expected. It wasn't a surprise. You see, what he does here, when you look on down verse 19 and 20, he, he ties together some quotations, one from Deuteronomy and the other from Isaiah 65. And it, he's really using the Scriptures to, to prove the point that God had predicted and prophesied widespread Jewish rejection. It hasn't taken the Lord by surprise. Prophesied. You turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 32. I'll go there first. We'll just see these, uh, these quotations. Deuteronomy 32 and the verse number 21. Because how these are used, again, in the New Testament is interesting. And I was, I was saying to our brother, Mr. Bryce, in, in the office there before the meeting, he prayed in, at 5.15. Young people, he prayed for you. 
And he prayed for you that you would see how the Bible connects together. And that when you see how the Bible connects together, you would then be convinced of its truthfulness. Uh, in my heart, I said, I, I said a very loud amen to that prayer. Because one of the things that God does in his kindness, he shows how the Bible all fits together. That you come to the conclusion, this is not the work of man, but the work of the God of absolute truth. And so you're going to see how these things fit together tonight. Look at Deuteronomy 32, please, and the verse number 21. Again, it's dealing with Moses and the people there. And he says to them, They have moved me to jealousy with that which is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their vanities. And I will move them to jealousy with those which are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. And that's what Paul is using here to describe the rejection of the Jews and then the ingathering of Gentiles. It's fulfilling this particular prophecy. And so if you keep your, your finger in Deuteronomy and then you go across to Romans chapter 11 and the verse 11, sorry, verse, uh, yeah, 11, verse 11, it says this, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation has come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. You see, Paul's taking the language of the Old Testament and he's saying to them, Dear people, do not be surprised by these things. My heart is breaking, but I'm not doubting God. My heart is broken for their rejection, but they're behaving according to type. They're a stubborn people. And you'll see it also in Exodus chapter 32. Turn to Exodus 32 now. Exodus 32. And the verse number 9. See, what's true of this people? Well, you've got here, and the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. They've, they've, they've just mailed this calf. They've, they've immediately violated the word of God, the law of God that came on Mount Sinai. They've done that, and they're, they're described as a stiff-necked people. Now, that's significant. Because Stephen refers to that in Acts chapter 7. And again, so where do you see this matter of Jewish rejection? Well, you see it in the preaching of the early apostles. In Acts chapter 7 and the verse 51, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do ye. When Christ came into Judea and preached the gospel in Galilee and in the regions around and Jerusalem and other places, he was met by and large with rejection. And Gentiles are now in the kingdom in Paul's day. And it's all in the plan and purpose of God. Now please listen carefully here. I have said in the last point that those who hear the gospel their rejection is inexcusable. No excuse. No way to sidetrack the issue. They're held accountable by God for their rejection. They are responsible for what they do with the gospel. But man exercising such a will does not thwart the purpose of God. God's plan from before time, known of God are his works from before the beginning, and part of the works of God included the engrafting of Gentiles into the gospel kingdom. 
And that engrafting also included widespread Jewish rejection of the gospel. This is all in the plan of God. Including those rejecting the gospel. You see, we think to ourselves, when we preach the gospel in the streets or in people's homes or every arm we're sharing the gospel, we presume to ourselves that they are in some way preventing the will of God being done. Nope. God's will is being executed in all of these things. And there's certainly cause for thought in that. But I want to encourage you with one other particular application. That, if you like, is the doctrinal application. But, but there is a devotional application also from this expectation. And that is, though men were not seeking for God, yet they were found off God. You see the reference here, verse number 20, referring to Isaiah 65. Isaiah is very bold and saith, I was found of them that sought me not. That thrills my soul. Because we are not encountering many people seeking the Lord in these days. And if our expectation of gospel success is based upon men seeking for God, then we are not going to hope for much success in these days. You understand that? We're not out there saying, are you looking, are you looking, are you looking? People are not looking for Christ. But yet Christ can find them. And that is the wonderful hope of the gospel. You take, for example, look back at Acts 18, please. Because you go to Corinth. And in Acts 18, Paul goes to the synagogue and he preaches to the Jews and he, he announces the gospel to those who, who, who know the Bible. And yet what happens? Verse number 6. When they opposed themselves and blasphemed. He's in the synagogue, verse number 4. He's reasoning. He's persuading them. And you get to the end of Acts You'll see him persuading them that Jesus is the Messiah. That's what he's doing. He's saying, this man, Jesus, he's your Messiah. But they opposed themselves and blasphemed. And he shook his raiment and said to them, your blood be upon your own heads. From henceforth I will go on to the Gentiles. And what happens? Verse number 8. Crispus. The chief ruler of the synagogue believed in the Lord of his house. Again, that's part of a Jewish remnant. Praise God. But many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. The Jewish rejection of the gospel was followed by those who were not looking for salvation and were not looking for Christ. That's the whole point of Romans chapter 10. They weren't looking, but they, Romans chapter 9, they weren't looking, but they found it. The Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, have attained righteousness. They weren't looking for Christ, but Christ found them. And as Christ found them, they saw their need, and they were gloriously saved. I come, because Paul goes to Corinth, and he says in his mind, I'm going to preach Christ, and I'm crucified. And not the mighty, not the noble, but the humble are saved because the gospel comes in the calling of God. And in the sovereignty of God, those who do not seek Christ are found of Christ. That's the hope of Romans chapter 10. Your gospel endeavors need not be fruitless. 
your gospel endeavors need not be frustrating because it's not depending upon you or those you're preaching to. It's depending upon the power of God and the rejection of those you preach to does not mean that God doesn't have someone else around the corner who's not looking right now, but they're going to run headlong into the gospel of Christ and their lives are going to be changed forever and forever. That is the wonderful grace of God. You think of the parable, the wedding feast. You go and invite this one, this one, the other one. I can't come, too busy doing this and all things. The Lord says, go into the highways. Go into the hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. Who's doing the compelling there? Christ by his Spirit is drawing souls into the fullness of the house. There will be no empty seats on that great day. The glorious time when Christ and his bride celebrate the glories of the gospel together. God is determined to save souls and will save souls despite the rejection of many. Please do not doubt or question God or the gospel when sinners reject the message. The gospel has not lost its power. God's not failing. God's not frustrated. He's doing his perfect will, and he's drawing in his people to the glory of his name. But lastly, please note tonight, so we're considering the subject of gospel rejection. We, we've seen it's not excusable. We've seen it's to be expected. But let's take a few moments at the close to examine the nature of this gospel rejection. And in this passage, there are, there are four additional thoughts regarding gospel preaching in these verses. Now, some of these we've seen already, and some are new, and I'm going to expand upon a few things. But what you see is when you examine these words and the words that are used here, you get an indication as to what gospel rejection actually is. And so there are four things true about the gospel preaching here. First of all, please note the gospel indicatives. What do I mean by that? Well, it's based upon the word in verse number 16. Who hath believed or report? In simple terms, an indicative is a statement of fact. It's a factual statement in some way. And the gospel is the statement of historical facts. Historical facts and doctrinal propositions that come from those facts. There are gospel indicatives. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's not, if you like, a theological statement, although packed full of theology. It's a statement of historical fact. Christ Jesus, at a moment in time, came into this world. We, we, we proclaim that, don't we? We must proclaim that. We must state the fact that at a certain point in time, a virgin conceived and was with child and brought forth her son, and his name is Jesus, because he saves people from their sins. Those are gospel indicatives. And when you think about the one who came into this world, his name is Jesus, and he is the eternal son of God, now in union with the true human nature, and so the indicative is, Jesus Christ is the God-man. He is the one He's able to reconcile God and man. These are statements of truth. This man, Jesus, lived a perfect life. That's a gospel statement. He lived a life of perfect obedience. He was sinless and perfectly righteous. 
This man, Jesus, he died upon a Roman cross. He was buried in a rich man's grave. And he rose again the third day. All of these things are statements of gospel truth. Factual statements. It is a report. Who hath believed a report? And one type of gospel rejection is a denial of the facts of the gospel. Another type is denying the doctrines that come from those facts. Because the facts in themselves are facts. But out of those facts do come these doctrinal propositions. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That presupposes certain doctrines. That God has given a law. And that people have broken his law. And therefore they are sinful in God's sight. But yet God in mercy sends his son. That those who believe in him can be saved. Those are all those are doctrinal propositions that come out of those factual statements. And people can believe the facts, but deny the doctrines. So what is true faith? It includes believing the factual account of the gospel and believing the doctrinal conclusions from those things. And that's what we saw over back in verse number 9 of, of Romans 10. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth, uh, I'm going to paraphrase it this way, thou shalt confess with thy mouth that Jesus is the Lord. There's so much packed into that confession. But it's a recognition that there's a man called Jesus, but everything in his life points to the truth that he is the Lord. Not Caesar curious, but Jesus curious. Jesus Lord. That's accepting the gospel. Understanding and hearing the truth claims of the history, and then also believing the things that come from that. It's a true hearing of the word. But there's more. Because the gospel does not only present indicatives, it also comes with intention. There's gospel intention here. What is the aim of the gospel preacher? It is to call people to saving faith. Not to intellectual faith only. One of the things we've seen again, in recent years in Reformed circles, is that preaching the gospel is the declaration of gospel doctrine. So you tell people this is what the gospel is. But there's a lack of power. And the lack of power, again, is for various reasons. But one of them is they've lost sight of the intentionality of the gospel. It is aimed at leading people to put their confidence in Christ Jesus. To rest in Him. To trust in Him. To rely upon Him. You can have your head filled with all manner of gospel truth and believe those things to be true. But if you personally have not put your trust in Christ, all of that knowledge will be to no avail in eternity. It's vital. We've got to push people. To respond to the gospel. Not to nod their heads. But to bow their heads in confession of their sins and trusting in Christ Jesus. And as the gospel is preached, we've got to say to people, what are you going to do with this message? You've heard it now. What are you going to do with it? 
Are you going to accept Christ or reject Christ? Now is a day of salvation. And there's a necessity of God to raise a band of preachers in a new generation who will compel people to believe the gospel. And will tell them there's a hell to shun and a heaven to gain. And Christ is the difference. And here he is. Will you take him today? Will you trust him today? Will you believe in him today? Compelling people to believe the gospel. Oh, there were those who came to believe in Jesus. We see it in John chapter 6. But as they're confronted with the truth claims of the gospel, they think these things are too hard to understand. But Peter knew, Thou hast the words of eternal life. Where else do we go? We can only go to you because you alone have the words of eternal life. It's a gospel intention. But note thirdly also the gospel imperatives here. And here we're thinking of commands. An imperative is a command, and that's implied here also. Because look what it says in verse 16. But they have not all, note the word, obeyed the gospel. They have not obeyed the gospel. God in the gospel commands faith. It does not come as a suggestion. It comes a command from God himself. The priests who obey the word of God in Acts chapter 6 are described in that way. They come to obey the gospel. Or you turn across to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Note again how those are described who you're going to face a judgment of God in the last day. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Who are those who are cast into outer darkness? Who are those who are going to face the wrath of God for all eternity? 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse number 8. Christ comes in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God. And that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who accept Christ, they hear the gospel command and they obey the gospel commands. They hear the call to repent and believe and they obey those commands. There is a calling unto God. There's a calling unto God from those who have been moved in their souls how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? They, they call on the God in a prayer of repentant faith. But, but God commands that prayer. God commands that prayer. You must repent and believe the gospel. And from that comes that confession of faith. And so gospel rejection is disobedience. One sin. One sin renders you unrighteous before God. Unworthy of eternal condemnation. But perhaps there's someone in this gathering and you've heard the gospel so, so, so many times. And every time you've heard the gospel, you've rejected the gospel. You've disobeyed the commands of God. Gospel imperatives. And finally, please note gospel invitations. Verse 21. But to Israel he saith, Again, continue the quotation from Isaiah 65. All day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. This is a, it's a wonderful and yet a challenging picture of God with outstretched arms. Sproul puts it this way. He says, God used the image of God. Sorry, Paul used the image of God with his palms open beseeching people, exhorting them, inviting them, telling them to come to him. 
And he stands there not just for a second, not just for a moment, not for a five-minute altar call, but all day long. The inviting arms of God all day long I have stretched forth my hands unto disobedient and gainsaying people. Gospel rejection is a stubborn determination to be contradictory against the gospel. That's what the word means, gainsaying, to contradict the truth. It's fearful to think of those who are so stubborn in their gospel disobedience. They are rejecting the offer of God's grace and invitation. You've got to assess this in the context of the Bible. Again, you should not highlight one passage above another. God is not frustrated. I've said already, He's accomplishing His perfect will. This is not a picture of God in in frustration. These verses are, uh, if you like, anthropomorphic. They're, They're showing God in human terms but they are showing God in human terms in terms to reveal the heart of God. And so the point of the passage is not to, it's not to form some doctrine of God's will, that God's will is being frustrated by man's rejection. That's not the point. It's to show the heart of God in inviting sinners to believe in Him. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come unto Him. You will not go to a lost eternity wanting to be saved, but not being allowed to be saved by God. If you want Christ, you can have Christ. If you want mercy, you can have mercy. If you want peace with God, you can have peace with God tonight. God is willing to receive you. Christ has died. He has risen again. The gospel is not far off. It is near thee. It's available to you tonight. Gospel invitation. So what do we do? Keep on keeping on, dear child of God. Keep on praying. Keep on preaching. Offer Christ to sinners. Exhort them to obey. Plead with them to be reconciled to God. And all things don't be discouraged. God is saving his people. Christ has died for them. And not one will be lost. Just keep on keeping on. Let's pray as we close tonight. Lord God and Father, we we do feel the weight of the responsibility of preaching the word of God in this dark time when people are so stubborn in their refusal to believe the word. And so we, we come again and we pray for those who are near to us geographically, and those who are near to us emotionally, we pray that in your kindness and in your grace you would move in their hearts. That though they are not seeking thee tonight, would you find them? Would you come in your mercy? Find the sinner that was lost. They're away off. Oh Lord, they're not too far from thee. You can find them and save them tonight. Help us, O God, use the word of God from this place and other churches. Thank you for those who are faithful to the gospel. Bless every effort in the gospel and use it, O God, for the building of Christ's church. We again look to thee in faith, believing, O God, that Christ shall see of the travelless soul and shall be satisfied. He shall indeed save his people from their sins. Encourage our hearts tonight and guide us and lead us in the coming days. In Jesus' name, amen.